All right, well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And before I jump in, I just want to say hello to our entire High Point family. And so regardless of whether you are here in the room or maybe tuning in somewhere from the greater Memphis area or perhaps somewhere uh, in the continental United States, we are so glad that you are here today. And I want you to know that we are grateful to have you worshiping with us this morning. Now, today we are in the eighth week of our 12-week series through the letter of Colossians, through the letter of Colossians. And if you tuned in last week, you know that Pastor Parker did a wonderful job unpacking and explaining to us the final verses of Colossians chapter 2. And so since he took us to the end of chapter 2, this morning we are in Colossians chapter 3. And so our passage today is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And before we jump in, uh, what I want to do is I want to quickly give you some context on what Paul is going to talk to us about here in this text. In this passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to explain to us uh, what it looks like to live a heavenly-minded life. He's going to explain to us that in order for us to truly live out the life that God is calling us to live here on earth, we have to be people who think of heaven often. In other words, what he's going to argue is that those who are most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. That's what we're going to be discussing today. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, go ahead and turn to Colossians 3, 1 through 11, and we're going to look at this passage under two headings. Uh, We're going to begin today by looking at the heavenly perspective, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the heavenly position. So we're going to begin with the perspective, and we will uh, end with the position. But but today, I want to begin uh, by looking at the perspective. And here's what we're going to learn in this text. Uh, The Apostle Paul, here's essentially what he's going to teach us. He says, listen, in order for you, he's talking to the Colossians and to us, that's how the word of God works, right? The original audience and the current audience. What Paul's going to do is he's going to say, in order for you to have a heavenly perspective, a consistent heavenly perspective, in order for you to truly cultivate that, There are two areas of your life that you constantly have to be addressing and evaluating. There are two areas of your life that you constantly have to be recalibrating if you are going to be a person who intentionally goes through life with a heavenly perspective, uh, with a heavenly, um, actually, sorry, I, I didn't make the switch in my notes, so actions is no longer there, so ignore actions, I apologize, I made a shift and they didn't show it in my notes. So we're only going to look at the first two because originally when I wrote it, it was a way too long of a message. So I had to cut something and that's unfortunately what died, okay? Uh, so Jesus knows what I wrote, but you will never know, okay? <laughs> so in this passage, in this passage, uh, there are two areas, two layers of our life that we constantly have to be evaluating and addressing and recalibrating if we are going to be people who have a heavenly perspective and a heavenly posture. Uh, The first area, according to Paul, is our affections, our affections, which is our heart. And then the second area is our attitudes, our attitudes, which is our head, okay? Those are the two areas that we constantly have to be evaluating and recalibrating in order to be people who have a heavenly perspective and a heavenly posture. So let's begin with the first one, which is our affections. Now, where do I get that concept of affections? Well, look what the Apostle Paul says in verse 1 of our passage today. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Let's let's go ahead and say that part together. Ready? Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So according to Paul, the first area of our life that we need to be evaluating and constantly addressing and recalibrating in order for us to have a heavenly perspective, in order for us to have a heavenly posture is our affections, 
our affections. Now, you may be asking, where do you get the affections? Like, like how do you know that Paul is talking to us about our affections? Well, the, well, the word there, seek, in the Greek, has to do with your heart. It has to do with the heart level of your, of your life. Here's what the word there, seek, in Greek actually means. When Paul says, seek the things that are above, the word there, seek, it means to desire something. It means to crave something earnestly and intensely. It means to look for something with such intensity that you do not give up until you find it and or experience it. So Paul is telling us here that we are to seek the things that are above. And the word there is a present active imperative. What does that mean? It's a present active imperative. Uh, the, the, present, what that, the present tense means is that we are to do this on a daily basis. We are to do this continually. We are to do this habitually, not just once, but every single day we are to seek the things that are above. And because it's an action, what it means is, is that it requires effort. In other words, no human being just accidentally drifts into having a heavenly mind. You don't just, you don't, if, you don't, if you're just wandering around through your life, you don't accidentally end up with your affections on the things of heaven. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. And then because it's an imperative, Paul is not suggesting this. Paul is commanding this. In the Greek, it literally reads, be constantly seeking the things that are above. Constantly seeking. And then the, the word there, above, in, in the New Testament, almost always refers to heaven. When you see the word above in the New Testament, it almost always refers to heaven, the place where God dwells. So get what, get, let's, get, let's, let's kind of get what Paul's saying here, okay? In light of what Paul writes in the original language, the apostle Paul is saying to us that we as believers must be constantly seeking, desiring, craving the things that are above. The things that are not here on earth, but the things that are in heaven, the things that are in heaven. Now, the question is, why would the apostle Paul tell us to seek the things that are in heaven? The reason why Paul says this, this is going to zoom out a little bit and look at the entire New Testament. The reason why the apostle Paul tells us to seek the things that are above is because according to the New Testament, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer of this world. That's what the Bible teaches if you look at the New Testament. And so if you're sitting here today and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, all it takes for you to place your faith in Jesus, according to Romans, is to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. When you do that, you get transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And all of a sudden, you are no longer of this world. That's what the New Testament teaches. When you look at the, the, the New Testament uh, overall, uh, Peter, in, in 1 Peter, he teaches us that not only is this world not our home, but he calls us aliens. He calls us strangers. He calls us exiles. Then Paul, in Philippians, Paul says that our citizenship is not on earth, it's in heaven. Then the author of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, he tells us that the city that we belong to is not an earthly city, but it's an eternal, lasting city, which is our home. So what the New Testament teaches us, and I don't want you to miss this, is that when you place your faith in Jesus, you are, you are redeemed, and you are rescued, and you are reconciled, but you are also relocated. You are relocated from being in Adam to being in Christ. And so now, if you are a believer... You are in this world, but you are no longer of this world. Can I get an amen? That's what the Bible teaches, the New Testament in particular. So, so, so that's why Paul calls us to seek the things that are above. But now that we've answered the why question, I would think that the next question is the how. How do I practically, intentionally seek the things that are above. Here's what Paul is saying at the most basic, most practical level. Paul says that we as believers need to daily be reorienting and recalibrating our lives on earth in light of the things that are true of us in heaven. We, we, we have to get to a place, church, where what we believe about heaven impacts how we behave on earth. 
that our heavenly status impacts our earthly steps. We have to get to that point. At the most practical level, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that a true believer in Jesus who has a a heavenly gaze, a heavenly perspective, a heavenly posture is a person who reorients their whole life, their, their allegiances, their aspirations, their agendas around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the person of Jesus is in heaven. When we are called to be centered on Christ, we're called to be heavenly minded because that's where Jesus is currently at. And that's where we will spend most of our existence. Francis Chan has this really interesting illustration. He has this really long rope, super long rope, like 30 feet long. And there's like a little sliver of tape on it at the beginning. And he says, this little sliver of tape is your life here on earth. The rest of the rope is eternity. So often we treat this like it's the feature presentation. But according to scripture, this is the previews. And until we understand that, we won't make the shifts that Paul is calling us to make. Does that make sense? That's why that's so important, church. That the the, the only way, we, we have to get to a place where our spiritual address changes our internal affections. It just has to. That's what Paul is calling us to when he says that our affections, our affections have to be in heaven. Our desires, our cravings, our longings can only be met in heaven. That's what Paul is getting after. Now, now here's the thing. I would say that part of the problem with, with, with this issue of affections is I don't think we actually talk about affections as often as we should in church, which is a shame because when you look at the New Testament and even when you look at the Puritans, they talked about the affections all the time because they knew just how vital your affections were and your affections are. Here's the thing about affections in uh, modern day Christianity. There, there tends to be uh, uh, two camps when it comes to the affections. Uh, there's one camp of Christianity that tends to idolize the affections. And it's all about the affections and the emotions. And there's other camps that completely ignore the affections. Those are bad. We should never, ever, ever worry about the affections. But here's the problem with both camps. I would argue that both camps have an unbiblical view of what affections actually are. Because both camps, and many, maybe, maybe even people here in the room, when you hear the word affections, you tend to think of your emotions. You tend to think of your feelings, you getting, you know, riled up in a worship service. But actually, like I said, when I gave you the meaning of the word seek, in scripture, your affections are, 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 they include your emotions, but it's much more than that. Your affections are your desires, your longings, your cravings. In scripture, your affections play a very big role in how you behave on earth. And and I think that part of the reason why we don't steward our affections better is because we don't have a biblical definition of our affections. We don't have a biblical theology for our affections. So we end up either idolizing it or completely ignoring it, okay? But here's the thing. I, I don't know about you, but I know that for me, one of the things that starts to happen in my life when I start to lower my gaze from heaven to earth, and I start to live like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes where he says all he saw was life under the sun. That phrase there in Hebrew, under the sun, means life without God. Like the, 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 the clouds are the limit. And when I start to lower my gaze, one of the first things that start to diminish is my affections for God. They, they start to wane. And it's not necessarily that they're waning as much as they are being redirected towards something else. I start doing exactly what Jesus says we shouldn't do, which is find our treasures on earth. Jesus says, make sure you have your treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And for me, I've seen that if I don't daily remind myself that I'm not of this earth, if I don't daily lift my gaze, I start to behave like There's nothing over the sun and there's only life under the sun. And my affections, my desires, my cravings, they start to diminish and wane for the Lord because they are refocused on the world. That's a dangerous place to be. I know for me, if I get to a place where I'm getting really anxious 
impatient, restless, uneasy. It's probably because I have lowered my gaze and I'm looking for in earth what can only be found in heaven. Here's the thing, and let's just be honest. For many of us, we're okay when we get to that place, right? When we lower our gaze, we're okay with Jesus being the Lord of heaven. And we're okay with him being seated on that throne, but you're not going to sit on the throne of my heart. You might be sovereign over creation, but you ain't sovereign over this. I got my own plans. And I got my own agendas. That's a dangerous place to be. But that's what can happen when our affections are on earth instead of in heaven. The other day, uh, we were uh, in small group. I have a, a small group that meets at my house. Uh, we, 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 inter- we switch with another family, but we have a small group. And if, you, if you're not in a small group, I would love for you to consider to be in a small group. Uh, our, our mission statement is to glorify God as gospel-centered disciples who gather, grow, give, and go. That second step, the grow, is to grow spiritually. We believe that people grow better in circles than in rows. You can learn in rows, but you grow in circles. And so we have two options for people in that step, whether it's either small groups or it's church at home. Church at home is both church and a small group at the same time. But, but I would really recommend that. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in practicing what I preach. And so if I'm going to call you to be in community, I feel that as your pastor, I should be in community as well. And so we have a group that meets at our house on Sunday nights. And last uh, Sunday, uh, we were, uh, I don't know if it was before or after our discussion, uh, but Annie C., who was just here on stage singing, uh, uh, her husband Christian is actually singing at the Carville campus this morning. Uh, we, were, we were in the living room, and her, her son, her little son's stone, walked up to my fireplace. And when he walked up to my fireplace, he said, Mommy, Mommy, look, the, the fire's on. The fire's on. She's like, I don't think it is. And so she goes and takes a closer look, and she sees that underneath the logs, there's this little flame on. Right? So she comes up to me, she's like, hey, I think your fireplace is on. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, that's the pilot light. That's not the, the fire's not on, that's the pilot light. It has to be on in order for there to be, in order for it to be ignited and then for there to be actual fire, right? Now, here's the thing about my fireplace that a lot of people don't know. I'm not a very handy person. Uh, never really been. Uh, I don't even try, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just don't. And when we first moved into the house, uh, Right behind our mounted TV, there was this light switch. I don't know what it was. I kept flicking it on and off, and nothing would happen. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess it's just a random light switch. And I never thought about it again. And so uh, a couple times, I attempted to turn our fireplace on. I turned that little knob thing. But what I didn't realize was that there was another lever underneath it that turned on the pilot. Right? So I just kept doing the knob and doing the switch. And after about two minutes, I'm like, oh, I guess it doesn't work. No fireplace ever in this house, just (laughs) because... doesn't work. So uh, uh, a few months ago, my father-in-law came down from Chicago, and he's usually the one that helps me around the house with all that stuff. And by help me, I mean he does it in my place, right? And uh, it's part of the reason why I'm trying to get that brother to move down here, okay? It's like, uh, uh, sorry, father-in-law. But, um, but, but anyways, he shows up, and he figures it out. And when he figured it out, all of a sudden, the pilot light came out, came on. And that light switch that before didn't do anything... Now you would hit it, and boom, voila, fire. Here's the thing. When we lose sight of heaven, when we lower our gaze, if we do that long enough, after a while, your pilot light goes out. And because the pilot light goes out, you can keep hitting the switch, but, but nothing happens. Because your affections aren't there. Your affections are wrapped up in the things of this world, not in the things that are in heaven. And so no matter how much Bible study you do, no matter how many small groups you do, no matter how many songs you sing, there's like a part of you that just can't turn on. Listen, you, you can't be seeking the things of this world Monday through Saturday and then try to light the pilot light on Sunday. That, that's not how it works. And for me, I feel that I went through, I've gone through seasons in my life where my pilot light has gone out. And it doesn't matter how much I sing, it doesn't matter how much I read, it doesn't matter how much I fellowship, the pilot light is on. So I can't turn the fire on because there is no pilot light on. 
The other day I was, uh, during the snowpocalypse that we went through here in, in Memphis, I, I was in my driveway and I was, I was trying to see, okay, like, I don't have a shovel uh, and I got to get through this driveway because I got to get somewhere. I'm like, so maybe if I back up fast enough, I'll just roll right through. So it's all about momentum. So I'm over there and I'm strategizing in my garage about how to get out of my own driveway, right? Out of my own garage. And, and, and what's interesting is that as I was looking at the snow, the Holy Spirit impressed something upon me. In that, in that, that two, three-day period, my, my, my Bible study and my prayer wasn't really that great. It wasn't that consistent. And the Holy Spirit impressed something on me as I'm looking out at this weather. The Holy Spirit, in that moment, was like, your heart internally reflects the weather externally. It's cold and it's barren and it's freezing. What's happening out there is a mirror of what's happening in here. And, and, and that's what happens to me sometimes. I feel that not only do my affections wane, but my heart grows cold to the things of God. And what I love about the Narnia story is in, if, you, if you remember in the story of Narnia, the white witch who was the Satan figure, the way that he would keep people in bondage was by freezing them. And then when Aslan comes back from the dead, he shows up at the castle and he brings them back by what? By breathing on them. And as he breathes on them, their hearts that were, not, were frozen are melted away. And now they can love again. They, their pilot light comes back on. Listen, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, and I don't know how often you've heard this at church, but your affections matter. Your affections matter. What you do Monday through Saturday matters. It just does. And, and the beautiful thing is that that same Aslan, the Jesus figure, who was breathing on hearts in that story, is still breathing on hearts today. That when you spend time with him and you lift your gaze again, the, the coldness of your heart melts away. And the pilot light comes back on. That's why, speaking of the Puritans, like I said earlier, and their, their focus on the affections, Thomas Chalmers, who is a very famous Puritan, he has a, an essay that he wrote. And literally, the name of the essay is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the whole premise is this. He says, look, if your affections are worldly, the only way to overcome that is with a greater, more expulsive affection. It's the only way to deal with that, with your passion and your desires, to, to find a greater passion, a greater desire, a greater craving. We need an expulsive, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. And that can only be found in heaven. So, the first area the first layer of our life that we constantly have to be evaluating and addressing and recalibrating in order for us to have a heavenly perspective and posture is our affections. The, the second area, though, is our attitudes. Our attitudes. Look what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 2. Paul says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your minds. Everybody say, set your minds. He says to set your minds on the things that are above. So what we see, according to what Paul writes here, is that the second way for us, the second area that we are to constantly be evaluating, that the second area that we are to constantly be recalibrating is our attitudes, our minds, our mindset, our, our heads, Set your minds, Paul says. The, the, that, that, that phrase there in Greek, it literally means to, to give all your attention to something, to, to ponder on something, to, to dwell on something, to really focus and concentrate on something. And like the first word that we saw, seek, it's, in the, it's a present active imperative. So again, it's a command, not a suggestion. And since it's present, it means that we are to constantly be setting our minds. Every day, day by day, we are to reorient ourselves, recalibrate ourselves by setting our minds on the things that are above. So, so the first verb we saw had to do with your motivations, your heart. The second verb that we're looking at now has to do with your mindset, your head. Paul says we need to be people. We need to be people who are setting our minds on 
heaven. Now, the question is, how, how do we actually do that? Like, like, what does it look like for you and for me to set our minds on the things of heaven? Well, what it means, and I'm going to combine the two uh, verbs that we just looked at. Paul, essentially what he's telling us is that you and I need to be people, check this out, every, every day, because it's, it's a present tense, every day we need to be, we, we have to reorient our hearts and our affections, and we have to renew our minds and our attitudes, Romans 12. We have to renew every day. Not every other day, not on leap year, not on Easter, but every day we are to reorient our motivations and our affections and we are to renew our minds and our attitudes. That's what Paul is calling us to do here. So, so the question is, how do we actually do that? What, what does it look like for me to renew my mind on a daily basis? Well, well here's what it means. Because Paul tells us in Romans 12, I don't have to guess, he actually tells us that the way that we renew our minds is with the word of God. This thing right here. The word of God, the Bible, and the work of God, the gospel. Pastor Tyler was bringing that up during our worship service today. The only way that you and I can renew our minds on a daily basis is with the word of God, the Bible, and with the work of God, the gospel. We have to go to the word, because think about it, think about it. The only thing in your life that's going to remind you who you are in heaven is the word of God, is the work of God. If you don't go to the word of God and you don't go to the work of God, then don't be surprised when you're not thinking about God. It's the only thing that reminds you that the work is finished already. That's why I add the, word, the work of God too. It's not just the, the, the word, but it's the work. Because there's people who go to the word every day but only feel more guilty. And they're convinced that since I'm going to the word, God loves me more. But what the work of God tells you is that you read the word not in order to get God's love, but because you already have God's love. That's why you need both the word and the work. And those two things together, they renew your mind. Like when, when Paul talks to us about Think on these things, things that are, are, are pure and things that are praiseworthy. Those things, those things are the word of God and the work of God. The more you dwell on those things, the more you meditate on those things, the more you become like the God above you through sanctification. Yesterday, Lily was uh, working. She was, every, about once a month, she has to work at her job. And so she, uh, on Saturday, she works. She has one Saturday per month. And so I usually stay at home with the girls. And uh, yesterday, uh, my oldest, Leah, was downstairs. And my youngest, Alicia, was upstairs. So I, I wanted to know what she was doing. So I walk upstairs to go see what my youngest, you know, my five-year-old is doing. And as I get closer to her room, I hear her talking, but I don't know what she's talking about. And so I come up to the door and I peek in and her, her back is to me so she has no idea that I'm watching. And she has this little Bible, which she thinks is a kid's Bible, but it's actually an adult Bible. It's just a small Bible. So she thinks it's a kid's Bible because it's small. And so she's reading from the ESV. And, well, she's not really reading because she has no idea how to read yet. Uh, but, but she has all her stuffed animals on her bed, like lined up. And she's reading the Bible to them. And she's like, all right, guys. So uh, Satan is a bad guy. And Jesus is a good guy. And Jesus died to save us from bad things, right? And so she puts the Bible away and then grabs her iPad. So she goes from like super godly to super worldly. Like she's like, done with that. You know, sermon's over. And so, so I walk in and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? So like, oh, I'm, I'm hanging out with my stuffed animals. And I'm like, were you reading the Bible to him? She's like, yeah. I'm like, can you read it again? Can you read it for me? She's like, okay. So I sit there and like she, she reads through the Bible again. Now, side note, this is a side note. That has nothing to do with the story, but this is something that I'm still struggling with. Uh, I, we went through all her 14 stuffed animals, and I asked her what their names were. She went through all the names, and about four of them were named after Lily, and not one of them was named after me. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me as a father, but it was funny because when I walked in and saw her reading the Bible, I'm like, man, I'm such a good dad. I'm killing it. 
And then like three minutes later, not one stuffed animal is named after me. I'm like, I'm such a bad dad. I'm not killing it. You know, it's like the exact opposite feeling three minutes later. But, but here, here's what, what hit me um, as I was looking at my daughter. Uh, read the Bible to me. It hit me because, as many of you know, we are in a very unique season uh, in our nation. Uh, even in our nation in this season, we, we, our world, in light of Romans 1, we talked about this in the idolatry series, our world is growing further away from God. And in God's passive wrath, he's giving the world up. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see things like what we saw this week, where our world is redefining terms like equality and gender. The, the, the world is thinking that they have ultimate power to redefine things that God has already defined for us in his word. And, and, and this week in particular, I, I, since I was already kind of praying about that and processing that, seeing my daughter with the word of God, I thought to myself, I am, the reason why I'm praying for our nation is not so much for the sake of the nation, but for the sake of our children and, and for our grandchildren. I'm thinking the world that they're going to have to navigate is so much harder than the world that I'm currently navigating. But, but here's the thing, church. Here's what's crazy. I think that we as believers, we talked about that during the politics series. I believe that we can't ignore politics, right? We can't idolize politics. We are called to be involved, whatever that looks like, right? But, but, but here's the thing. You would think that my, 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 uh, re, re, like my response in that moment would be, oh, okay, I really got to get my, my daughter a, a, voting, a voting guide. I really got to give her a political uh, a, a position. She's got to really know how to vote because this world is crazy. No. You know what the Lord convicted me of in light of this passage? What I have to model for my daughter is not how to vote, but how to view. My, my job as her dad is not to change her vote or manipulate her vote. My job is to model for her what it looks like to have a view of a world that's not this world. That at the end of the day, the reason why we go to the word of God and the reason why we go to the work of God is because ultimate truth is found in the word of God and your ultimate identity is found in the work of God. I want my daughter one day to understand that her identity doesn't come from her race or from her gender or from her career or her financial status. It comes from Jesus Christ. So, so when I see what's happening in our nation, it, it, it motivates me to respond, but not the way that people would think. It, it motivates me to say, if I want my kids to live differently in this world, that doesn't just happen once every four years at an election. But I have to, as a father, I can't expect my daughters to lift their gaze if I never lift my gaze. I can't expect my daughters to respond like, like Jesus would if I'm responding like everybody else does. And so many Christians right now are freaking out like, oh no, uh, the, the world is coming to an end. Our land, where's our land going? Listen, my land ain't this land. I am from another land. And so at the end of the day, if God's will is to do something with America that, that I might not agree with, I'm not from this land. This is not my world. And I have to model that to my children. And we have to model that to our grandchildren. And to the next generation that at the end of the day, we have to lift up our gaze. And it's not about how we vote. Ultimately, it's about how we view the world around us. So, so, so what we see is that in order for us to have a, a, in order for us to really evaluate our attitude, in order for us to really make sure that our attitude, our mindset, our thought life is, is constantly looking upward on a daily basis. We need to be in the word of God and we need to be reminded of the work of God. We have to, we have to. But, but here's the thing. Let's just kind of say it how it is, okay? There are two reasons why many of us don't have a heavenly mind. There are two reasons why, us, why many of us are not heavenly minded the way we are called to be. The, the first reason is because to really do that on a daily basis is really, really hard. And the second reason, and no one's probably ever told you this at church, it seems kind of impractical and unrealistic. So, so, so let me explain to you the first reason. The first reason why, why many Christians, including me, are not heavenly minded is because it's hard to lift our gaze in the world that we live in. 
I, I don't know about you, but many of my days, I'm, I'm so focused on what I have to do next. My to-do list and my calendar have way more say on what I do than the Word of God. And so I go from work, and I go from meeting to meeting, and I plan the next meal, and I help my girls with homework, and I watch Netflix with my, my, my wife, and, and we, I, go, I just keep going. The whole day is kind of already, it's like, it's like a routine that I just go through and go through and go through. But for, for some of us, and let's be totally honest here, it's not just that we, can't lift, we, that we can't lift our eyes to heaven. You would think, oh, I'm not looking at heaven because I'm thinking about earth. But when we think about the world, we're not thinking about the world. Like, we don't care about what happens in Africa. We're thinking about our little itty-bitty world. My bills, my problems, my agenda, my priorities. And so often for me, it's so difficult to lift my gaze because I'm too focused on what's in front of me. If I'm being honest, for me, It's hard for me, I'm so busy on earth that I lose sight of the beauty of heaven. I'm so busy being Martha that I forget to be Mary. I'm so busy doing for Jesus, Martha, that I forget what Jesus has done for me, Mary. You know, one of the things that happened uh, over the last, you know, few couple weeks with the snowpocalypse I'm from Chicago, that's why I keep putting it in quotes. But the snowpocalypse was the, the, that whole boil water warning thing that happened, you know, in the greater Memphis area. And this warning came out, you got to boil your water. The water is contaminated. The water is polluted. Now, something you may not know about me is I'm, I'm a very germaphobic type person. In other words, I was doing the whole hand sanitizer thing way before COVID, like, And like with me, I would put some on in the car, and then if we went into a restaurant and they had one, even though I just did it two minutes ago, I would do it again, because you never know. Like, hey, there you go. Like I literally use hand sanitizer probably double now, but I was using it a lot before. COVID has nothing to do with my hand sanitizer use, okay? I've always been a germaphobic type person. So when I found out that the water was potentially polluted and contaminated, I kind of had a freak out, right? And I came home and I'm like, Lil, did you hear about the water? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, that's really bad. Like, we got bottled water, right? She's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's great. She's like, well, but we're in Carville, though. Like, that doesn't impact us. That's just people in the Memphis area. And I'm like, Lil, I can't risk that. Like, how do you know that it doesn't impact us? And I'm like, do we have water bottles? Yes or no? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, if you want to risk your life, be my guest. <laughs> but I'm not risking this, baby, Okay. <laughs> And literally like, like, literally, like, I go, and for the rest of the week, even though I'm in Carville, all I drink was bottled water, just in case, because I didn't want to die, okay? And here is what the Lord convicted me of this week as I was preparing this message. As I think about being heavenly minded, the, the Lord was like, well, what would it look like in a day of your life or in a week of your life if you avoided sin the same way you avoid germs? Literally, like, that's what the Holy Spirit impressed me with. Like, why are you more concerned with your water being contaminated and polluted than you are with your life being contaminated and polluted? I'm okay with that. But don't touch my water, though. Don't put germs around me. What would it look like if many of us were just as intense about sin as we were about germs. That would have a very, very big impact. Here's the other reason, though. It's not just because it's hard, right? But, but it really, to be heavenly-minded seems like a very impractical thing, right? And, and you might you'd be like, I don't know, Well, you know, you're in church, so you can't admit that. We all got to look super holy right now. But, but even some of the language that we use in our day shows you that we don't think being heavenly-minded is that practical, for example, when you see like a little kid that's kind of spacey, you're like, that kid, man, his, his, head's, his head's always in the clouds. What's up with that kid? Something's wrong with that kid. Or when we see someone who's very just humble, we're like, you know that girl? She's got her two feet on the ground. That's, that's a very down-to-earth gal right there. I like that girl. Think about that language we use. Head in the clouds, down-to-earth. Theoretically, we might like the idea of being heavenly-minded, but functionally, Practically, I don't got time for that. 
Who, who, who's going to be heavenly minded? Who's got time for that? I got way too much stuff on earth to figure out. See, but, but, but here's the thing. And here's what we have to understand. I would argue, and C.S. Lewis argues this too. I'm going to read a quote from him, from him in a second. That, that the most heavenly minded people do the most earthly good. And here's why. Let me go back to that Narnia uh, book that I brought up. One of the things that was interesting about those four kids is that they behaved a certain way before they went into the wardrobe. They go into Narnia and discover while in Narnia that they're royalty, that they are royalty. They're there for years in Narnia time, and then they end up coming back to London. But when they come back to London, they behave differently. Why? Because they understand that they're royalty now. You get what I'm saying? So, so in other words, their identity in that world impacts their activity in this world. Church, when we understand that in Jesus we are royalty, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places in that world, it should change your activity in this world. It has to. It has to. You see, because here's what happens. If, if you are a person, one of the things that the passage says, and we're going to look at that in a second, he says that Christ is your life and that he, you are hidden with Christ. The, the word there, hidden, means to be safe, to be secure in someone. That everything we have and everything we are is hidden and secure in the shelter and fortress of Jesus Christ. Man, when I understand that, the reason why that results in earthly good is because when I understand that my validation and my justification and my righteousness come from heaven and not from earth, they come from the God above me and not the people around me, now I can serve you with no strings attached. I can serve you with no fine print on the contract. I can serve you with no ulterior motives. Why? Because Jesus has already given me everything I need. And because Jesus has given me everything I need, I can give away everything I have. So I would argue that being heavenly minded makes you a better neighbor, not a worse one. It makes you a better spouse, not a worse spouse. It makes you a better friend, not a worse friend. It makes you a better parent, not a worse parent. Because you can serve people out of the abundance. You can serve people horizontally because Jesus has provided for you vertically. One pastor that I came across this week said this, in order for us to reach the world and serve the world, we must first leave the world. But if I don't leave it, then I'm no different than the neighbor next door who doesn't know Jesus. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, let me get to that part. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Listen to this. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world are those who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Get that. Lewis says that the reason why Christians are so ineffective in this world is because we don't think about the next world enough. And then he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So the two areas that we have to be evaluating, addressing, and recalibrating to have a heavenly perspective is our affections and our actions. So now that we've looked at the heavenly perspective, the heavenly posture, I want to conclude this morning by looking at our heavenly position, our heavenly position. And to do that, um, I want to reread for you verses 1 through 4. Look what Paul writes. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Don't miss that, church. Seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's so good. That's, we'll get to that. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. So, so, so get this, get this, okay? According to Paul, the only way that you and I can keep and maintain our heavenly perspective is if we daily embrace our heavenly position. Which makes sense, right? Because a lot of times your perspectives come from where your position is. Paul says that if you try to do the first part without relying on the second part, you ain't going to do the first part. Think about it, church. If we don't have the second part, which is our heavenly position, then all of a sudden Christianity is no different than any other religion. Almost every other religion has an afterlife. Almost every other religion has a heaven type thing that they're looking forward to. But if all you have is a perspective without a position, then Christianity is no different than any other religion. But Paul says the only way you can keep your perspective is by embracing and resting in your position. And in this passage, the apostle Paul, what he does is he explains to us our position in three ways. He says that we've died with Christ. Then he says we've been raised with Christ. And then he says we've been seated with Christ. So let's, let's work our way through that, okay? The first thing that Paul says is that we have died with Christ. That's what he says in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, we have died with Christ. But then in Galatians 6.14, Paul further expounds on this. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, but far be it from me. This is actually the first passage I preached on at High Point. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Church, I don't want you to miss this. Paul says that our first heavenly position is that we have been crucified with Jesus Christ. And here's what I love about that idea of being crucified. In order for Jesus to be crucified, he first had to be incarnated. In order for him to die for us, he first had to come looking for us. And here is something that you might not know. The word there, seek, that Paul uses in verse 1, that's actually not the first time in the New Testament that that word seek is used. As a matter of fact, in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus, he declares his mission statement, and he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, so church, I don't want you to miss what this means. This is why your position drastically changes your perspective and your posture. If that's true, that that word was used first to describe what Jesus did instead of what we did, then what that means is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily about you seeking Jesus, it's about Jesus seeking you. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily about you loving Jesus, but Jesus loving you. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily about you sacrificing for Jesus, but Jesus sacrificing for you. It's not primarily about you loving him to the point of death, but him loving you to the point of death. That's good news. That's good news. And here's the thing. The more you, you meditate, the more you behold Jesus Christ being crucified in your place, the more you meditate on that, the more you, you behold that, all of a sudden you, you, you start to shift. You literally start to go from being, heaven, to being, from being earthly minded to being heavenly minded. You go from being a worldly to being godly. You go from focusing on temporal things to focusing on eternal things. You go from being self-centered to being Christ-centered. Because when you see Jesus willingly giving it all up for you, then all of a sudden you are much more willing to give it all up for him. Come on. So the first reality that we see here that's just so beautiful is that we have been crucified with Christ. But the second reality that describes our heavenly position is not just that we have been crucified with Christ, but we have been raised with Christ. You and I, we have been raised with Christ. Look, look what it says here in verse 1. 
In verse one of the passage, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. He's raised, past tense, aorist tense, done. If you've been raised, past tense, that should have an impact, present tense. And then in Romans 6, 4 through 5, Paul explains this idea of us being raised with Christ. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, get this, we shall certainly, not probably, not most likely, but we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Church, that's beautiful. That, that because Jesus has raised, then that means so have we. When we place our faith in him, if that's true of him, then that means that that is also true of us. But what I love about this is that he's saying we get to live a resurrected life right now. Not later, right now. Jesus says to one of the sisters who lost Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so if we know Jesus, we get to live in light of that resurrection power right now, today. That's crazy. Church, this isn't a, a hypothetical thing. This is a factual thing. This isn't a mystical thing. This is a material thing. This isn't a make-believe thing. This is a true thing. And when you understand that, it changes how you live on earth. When you understand who you are in heaven, it changes how you behave on earth. It has to. Because if Jesus Christ was able to raise from, rise from the grave of death and of sin, then all of a sudden, that same Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us the power to raise from our graves. If, we, if Jesus Christ raised from the grave then that means now we have the power in the spirit to raise from our graves of insecurity, from our graves of shame, from our graves of guilt, from our graves of doubt, from our graves of anxiety. We get to raise from those graves in a smaller sense because Jesus raised from the grave in the bigger sense. But not only are we crucified with Christ and not only are we resurrected with Christ. But my favorite one in all this, one that we don't get to talk about often, is that we are seated with Christ. Look, look what it says here in the text. Paul says, verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here's what you might not know, okay? In Daniel chapter 7 and in Psalm 110, there are passages in the Old Testament that tell us that one day someone was going to sit at the right hand of God. That one day this person, this mysterious person was going to be the Messiah and they were going to sit at the right hand of God. And for years and for decades and for centuries, no one knew who this person was. And then all of a sudden, in Mark chapter 14, 61 through 62, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest accuses him. It says in verse 61, again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, get this, Jesus said, I am, which is God's Old Testament covenant name. I am. And then he says, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, that's me. I am that person. Come on, that's beautiful. That now because of what Jesus did, because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it changes everything, church. It has to. See, a lot of people don't know this, but the person who sat at the right hand of a king was at the same level as that person. They shared authority. They shared intimacy. It meant that the king trusted that person and they had the king's ear. So when Jesus says that he is that person who sits at the right hand of God, he is of equal power to God now. They're at the same level. He has the same authority that the Father has. That's what the Bible teaches us, church. But here's the great news about Jesus being on the throne and us being seated with Christ. If that's true, then get this. We don't have to be righteous because Jesus is our righteousness. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus is our perfection. 
We don't have to offer a sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't have to give a defense because Jesus is our defense. That's what that means. So here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel is not just about what Jesus did back then. It's about where he is right now. Because he's there, he is interceding on our behalf, the Bible says. He is interceding for us. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but when you, when you think about a courtroom setting, if you're a defendant, you're only as good as your representation. Like, you can be the most brilliant person in the world. If your lawyer is dumb, you're done. And you could be the dumbest person in the world. But if your lawyer, if your defense attorney is good, then you're good. If they're not nervous, you're not nervous. If they're not anxious, you're not anxious. If they're not sweating, you're not sweating. He's like, hey, if they're good, I'm good. Think about what it means when we hear that Jesus Christ is our advocate. Church, when you understand that Jesus is your advocate and you stand before God one day, you have the freedom now to know that the debt has been canceled. The, the verdict is in. The law has been fulfilled. The case is closed. Not because of us but because we have an advocate in heaven. And here's the thing that people don't understand. In 1 John 1, 9, Jesus says, uh, John says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, John says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a word there that you can read right past if you're not paying attention. He doesn't say that God is faithful and kind or that God is faithful and loving. It says, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Why does John use the word just? Well, the reason why John uses the word just is because when Jesus died in our place, he paid for our sin in our place. Legally, the debt is canceled. So it's God's justice that forgives you because if God were to punish you again for a sin that's already been covered by Jesus, it would be double jeopardy. It's God's faithfulness and his justice. So a lot of us think that Jesus is interceding for us and he's sitting there just pacing like, oh, they did it again. Oh, here we go. Again? Oh my goodness, here we go. And a lot of us feel like Jesus is up there just begging for more grace. He's pleading for mercy. Just give him another chance, God. They meant well. No, no, no. Jesus isn't up there negotiating a plea deal. Jesus is up there demanding justice. Because if you are in him, the price has been paid and the debt has been canceled and the standard has been fulfilled. That's good news. That's good news. And so when the passage says that all things are hidden in him, and I'll end with this, it says that things are hidden in him. To have something hidden, it's a place of security. It's a place of safety. Think about what that means. It means that now in light of what the gospel teaches, Our righteousness, our validation, our acceptance, our approval are hidden in Christ right now. We don't have to go looking for something on earth that we already have in heaven. As a matter of fact, uh, John Bunyan, who wrote uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, the thing that led him to the Lord, this is literally his testimony. He was walking through a field one day, and all of a sudden, he thought about this passage, and it hit him. He said, wow, my righteousness is in heaven. Like right now, my righteousness is not on earth. It's in heaven. And at that moment, he was converted. That's what Jesus tells the disciples when they come back and tell them about all the things they've done after their missions trip. Jesus says, rejoice, not that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, to be heavenly minded means I rejoice not in what I do for Jesus, but in what Jesus has done for me. So what we see That it's true. That to be heavenly minded does actually result in the most earthly good. And that the only way that you and I are ever going to exhibit a heavenly perspective is if we embrace our heavenly position. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Listen, if you're here today and you're saying, I want to know this Jesus. I, I don't know that I am prepared for heaven. I don't know that I am living a heavenly oriented, heaven-oriented life.
Maybe for you, today's the day where you decide to be relocated from being in Adam to being in Christ, from being on earth to being in heaven. The Bible says that all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that very moment, you shall be saved. If that's you, maybe you have to take that moment and pray and ask God to save you now. And for everyone else, Lord, I pray that you would help us to think about heaven often. And the reason why we think about heaven often is because we think about Jesus often, and that's where Jesus is. Help us to understand that we have been crucified with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and we are now seated with Christ. And the more we meditate and behold that, the more we will move from being earthly-minded to being heavenly-minded. We love you, Lord, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.